This podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute, online at davenantinstitute.org. Hear more at the conclusion of today's program. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Confessions of faith are very useful because sometimes they draw circles for us to allow us to have a diversified orthodoxy. They're unfairly caricatured as doctrinal straitjackets. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. My name is Jonathan Master. I am here joined as always with my co-host and good friend, James Dalzell. James, how are you today? Doing well, Jonathan. Good. Yeah. Well, we're, we're both excited to um, have our guest on today. He is the Harriet Barber Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, author of a number of books and articles. And we're just going to discuss one smaller one today, but I think one that's very, very relevant uh, to our own situation. It's called The Need for Creeds. And so, John Fesco, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure and a joy to be with you guys today. Well, it's always a joy for us to have a, a friend on and uh, and then someone whose work we've really admired. I, I wondered if I could just start by asking a question about the impetus behind this book. Mm-hmm. Um, you, it's it's about creeds. It's it, There's an assertion in the title that we need creeds. Mm-hmm. In your mind, as you are writing it, are you writing it for people who are in creedal environments but don't know why, or people who have never thought or perhaps even have kind of antipathy against mm-hmm. a, a creedal church? Or wh- who, was, who was in your mind as you were putting this together? I intended it kind of to hit a number of different audiences. Uh, you know, there's a couple of different people that I had in mind as to how successfully I pull it off that, you know, I'll leave to the reader. But the, the first type of person is the person who doesn't really know anything about uh, creeds. So I want to try to whet their appetite uh, for, you know, getting into them. The second type of person is, say, the person in the Reformed Church in a pew who knows about the creeds, sees them in the back of the hymnal, uh, maybe has repeated some of them here and there, the shorter catechism, whatever, but doesn't necessarily know how important they are. Uh, the third type of person is, say, the, the Reformed person in, in, in the church uh, perhaps maybe the pastor or some, in some cases, some scholars who have taken a slightly negative uh, opinion towards creeds and perhaps have been critical at times of them, uh, you know, seeing them as kind of like a doctrinal straitjacket. And, um, and then the, the fourth type of person is the person that just loves the creeds and, uh, you know, wants to understand them better. Uh, so I'm hoping that there's a, a little bit uh, of there in, in, in the book for everybody. Uh, I know it's perhaps a quite a, a tall bill to fill given the small size, uh, but um, why not? Uh, you know, it's like, hey, uh, swing, for the, swing for the bleachers. And, uh, you know, if you miss, maybe you get a, a stand up double, you know, so uh, I'll take what I can get. It is the it is the right time of year for baseball analogies. <laughs> it's, it's on our minds. Um, so so. John, one of the things that you, you, we've often heard at a popular level is people will say, well, I don't, I, the only creed I have is the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be biblical. And of course, that we would all agree we want to be biblical in every aspect of our doctrine. But what in your mind is the problem with someone saying, hey, listen, I've got my Bible. I believe my Bible. 
I don't need some extra biblical man-made mm-hmm. uh, document to 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 codify any further what I what I'm committed to. Yeah, you know the the first answer that I usually present to them is I want to turn to Ephesians four, where the Apostle Paul talks about that in the wake of the ascension of Christ, that he distributed gifts to the church through the outpouring of the spirit. And among those gifts uh, are included pastors and teachers. And I say, okay, so would you readily acknowledge that the pastors and teachers that are around us are gifts to the church that Christ has given to us, who he has gifted not only to the church, but also gifted these individuals with the ability to learn, to understand, and to communicate the truths of scripture. And I hope that they would say yes. And then I'd say, okay, well, then the next question would be is, well, do they have to be living in order for you to appreciate them? Uh, In other words, God has given through Christ and the Spirit, gifts to the church through every age of the church, whether it's the early church, the medieval church, the Reformation, or now as we live in the post-Reformation period and in the contemporary period. And so I want to say, if that's the case, then we should want to take advantage of every single uh, teacher that we can that is Christ's gifts to the church and learn from them to join hands with them and to borrow a line from Jude to profess the faith that has once been delivered to the saints. And then the second question that I want to press upon them is to say, um, you know, do we have to reinvent the wheel every single time that we uh, come to the Bible or can we rest upon uh, the teaching of earlier generations or, you know, an image that often comes to mind is, can we stand on the shoulders of giants on these gifted teachers and theologians who have taught us before? And can we use their insights that they have codified in, you know, the various creeds and confessions, whether it's the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian definition, as those very documents and creeds have been incorporated in subsequent confessional documents, such as the Westminster Standards. And again, I hope that they would say yes. And then third and finally, I would, you know, approach them and say, however much you may find creeds uh, distasteful, you are in effect giving yourself a creed by saying no creed but the Bible. That is in itself a creed, uh, however short it may be. And so, hey, if you're using a creed, why would you discount other creeds? So that that's kind of the, the three-pronged approach that I would I would want to take. And it would probably require a cup of coffee. So you, it's not a quick answer. So, you know, you'd have to sit down and, and work through that. John, on that, I, I, you make the argument not simply that creeds are uh, a wisdom issue, mm-hmm. uh, but that, in fact, it's a necessity. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could speak to that uh, for just a brief moment. And you've already observed sort of de facto, we all have a creed, yeah. even if yeah. our creed is, I have no creed, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but why, why would you argue that they are necessary? And then if I could footnote on that, and then you can just run with it. You also say that they're necessary both for the being mm-hmm. and for the well-being of the church. So how is both the being and the well-being sort of rooted in this creedalism? And why is it necessary, not merely a, a sort of free wisdom issue? 
Yeah. One of the things that the scriptures enjoins upon the people of God is to teach uh, the present as well as future generations about the, the, the mighty redemptive acts of God. And I showcase that, you know, say in the celebration of the Passover with the dedication of the firstborn when the children are, you know, asking their parents, what, what does this all mean? And so when God enjoins that upon his people, I say that it's not just simply incumbent upon us merely to repeat the words of scripture as if we were to just read from the scripture. The very question that the child is, is asking, what does this mean, requires that we go beyond the words of scripture to explain what the scriptures mean. Uh, and so you see this, for example, say when the scribes in, in Nehemiah, uh, the book of Nehemiah, would not only preach the word of God or read the word of God, but then as it says in Nehemiah 8, and give the sense. And so the fact that we have to give the sense and explain it, and that this is enjoined upon us by God, means that we can take our words, which are not inspired by scripture, and explain the meaning and significance of scripture, and that ideally our explanations are supposed to carefully trace the teaching of scripture so that we do not diverge from the teaching of scripture uh, to ensure that our teaching and our explanations, our extra biblical words about scripture are consistent with it. And uh, I think you find this pattern, as I argue in the book, in the, the, the use of or Paul's use of the faithful sayings uh, in the pastoral epistles. These are not sayings that originate in the explicit or ipsissima verba, the, ex, uh, you know, the exact words of scripture. So they're not quotations from scripture, but rather they are sayings that faithfully trace the teaching of scripture or the teaching of Christ so that they originate outside of the scriptures. But Paul finds them so consistent with the teaching of scripture that he incorporates them into uh, the authoritative inspired word of God. So we can therefore say things that are so consistent with scripture that they could be incorporated with it or they trace the line of scripture. And so I think it's therefore necessary or incumbent upon us to do this. And and I don't say this so much in the book, but there's a parallel that I draw or several parallels in that when we pray, we don't just simply repeat the Lord's prayer and then stop and say, okay, that's all I can pray for. Our prayers using our own words have to be consistent with the truth and teaching of scripture. Uh, likewise, when we sing, um, now I know that this is a slightly you know, debated topic in reform circles, but when we sing our hymns, should be consistent with scripture. It's not, we're not, we, I don't believe we are merely restricted to the words of scripture. Uh, and the same thing can be said about when we, uh, you know, when we pray or when we preach, we're not just simply repeating the, the exact words of scripture. We're using our own words and tracing the truth line of scripture. Well, if this is the case, given the fact that we're supposed to uh, teach future generations and pass down the truth, then it's not only for the well-being of the church, in other words, a wise and helpful practice, but I think it's necessary for the being of the church that we take the, the commands of scripture, the instructions about catechizing future generations, and we pass down our own 
explanations of scripture uh, to our children and to our children's children and so on and so forth. And so that's the overall argument that I make in the book. And, and I, I pray and hope that uh, people, readers find it persuasive. I wonder if we could, I like that you would, it would almost, you're almost putting the no creed, but the Bible people on the spot, because why not then say no prayer, but the Bible's prayers, right. no songs, but the Bible's songs, no sermons, but those preached by apostles. That's right. Um, and, and there are some traditions that uh, absent a preacher will just simply read mm-hmm. a biblical text and there's no exposition, but um, that's good. That tie, ties those together that the Lord u- allows us to use uh, human words that give, mm-hmm. that give the sense and even a summary of the faith that we hold so that we can preserve it and pass it on. Absolutely. And, you know, just one of the things my grandfather used to say, and I suspect it's not something that's unique to him, but he used to say, you can't give away what you don't own. And if we, if we don't own it personally, then we can't really give it on and pass it on to the next generation. And so that's why I think it's incumbent for us. You know, you you see this say in, in, in ordination exams, you know, say if, if an ordinand gets asked, you know, what's, what's, you know, what's the chief end of man? Well, they can answer that question to, you know, to, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But I always want to dig beyond that and say, what does that mean? (laughs) You know, explain it to me in your own words. Uh, And that tells me whether or not somebody really understands it. And so uh, like say when I'm catechizing my own kids, I I do my best to to press them to say, do you understand what that means? And can you, can you give it back to me in your own words? And so I think that's vital, whether you say, as you say, in prayer, in preaching, in song, or in confessing our faith. John, one of the, one of the issues that arises in your book is the way in which, and I suppose this is also an argument that some have made against creeds or uh, formalized statements of faith, is that the way in which they do, by their very nature, divide communions and divide individuals one from another. Um, they're meant to do that because they, they sort of draw a line in the sand, but that can have consequences that, um, you know, are, 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 unfortunate consequences and there's mm-hmm. violence associated with creedal statements in some cases or or these cause dis- division so so notwithstanding that you're still arguing we need to do it and we need to em- embrace these and and mm-hmm. and this is part of how the church remains healthy and and sound um but but you do spend time with that so i wonder if you could address that a little bit the question of how these create division and how these have been responsible in various cases for, for, uh, for violence. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I talk about are the causes for deconfessionalization, if I can put it that way. Uh, why is it that confessions have kind of fallen out of, uh, you know, uh, at least popularity in many corners of the church. And uh, one of those is because, you know, as I say, theologically inspired violence uh, in the uh, 17th century, it was a very bloody century. Uh, I tell my students this, that say with the 30 years war, which was fought from 1618 to 1648, it was the bloodiest conflict in all of world history up until World War I. Uh, Some 8 million people were killed in that conflict and it was fought along confessional lines, Protestant against Catholic. And, uh, you know, so on the one hand, I think we have to own our past, uh, because if we do not uh, learn from the past, uh, then we're going to repeat its errors. And so it's, you know, I I always have to qualify this when I say this, but I always say we shouldn't be fearful of sinning 
I mean, we should, okay, that's, don't, don't get me wrong, but it, our, the thing that we should fear greater, perhaps I should say, is, is not learning from our past sins, not repenting of them and completely turning from, away from them. And so we're going to sin and we should do everything we can to avoid it. But if we do sin, we have to make sure that we don't repeat it again. And so that's, I think, what we have to do when it comes to, say, the, 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 the creeds, how they have been misused in the past, that if we uh, embrace our creeds and it leads us to violence, then something has seriously gone wrong with our understanding of scripture um, and, 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 and how we're supposed to use these documents. On the other hand, you know, to quote that, I think that, I think it's a medieval maxim, uh, abusus non tollet uh, usus, you know, abuse does not destroy use. Um, we want to recognize that uh, the misuse of creeds and confessions shouldn't keep us from using them properly. And, uh, you know, if we understand how these documents have been written in the past, uh, yes, they do draw lines in the sand, and sometimes they're going to separate us from one group or another. Uh, obviously, say, Protestant from Roman Catholic, and those are important lines that we draw in the sand. But on the other hand, sometimes confessions of faith uh, draw circles. In other words, they have uh, say that within this circle, we can have a variation of, of different opinions so that we can have a diversified orthodoxy, a number of different opinions that maybe we don't agree one with another, uh, but uh, we can say that within this circle, we can recognize each other's opinions as potentially valid options, but not outside the bounds of orthodoxy. And so we just have to recognize some, you know, we need those lines in the sand and we should never, you know, use violence in order to enforce them. We use the sword of the spirit, the word of God. But on the other hand, confessions of faith are very useful because sometimes they draw circles for us to allow us to have a diversified orthodoxy and that they are not, I think, they're unfairly caricatured as doctrinal straitjackets, uh, you know, and uh, being unduly narrow. Uh, and so hopefully that's, those are some of the points that I try to bring out uh, in the book. I think we have a tendency to do this, uh, to, to focus on those particular aspects of our creeds that are mm -hmm. um, the most distinctive uh, and specific, as opposed to those that are the most general um, mm -hmm. or the most sort of broadly Catholic. Uh, and I've often thought the, creed, the creeds do have this double mm -hmm. function, like what you're describing, where they are they're exclusionary uh, on the one side, but mm -hmm. on the other, they're inclusive. And what they include is, in fact, without compromising, mm -hmm. is, in fact, quite broad. Um, I think particularly on primary articles of the faith, Christology, doctrine of God, um, these, are, these are things that should should you know sort of function as basic Christianity. Yeah, no, I, to I um, totally agree. I think you're absolutely right on that. John, if someone is is completely new to the idea of creeds, if this is not has not been a part of their Christian experience, maybe they've been in a church. We know we know many people that we meet um, are in churches that will say something like "no creed but the Bible," or will perhaps have a limited number of doctrinal commitments that are that are fairly broad and and sometimes vague. Um, what where where would you suggest? for people to start should they should they begin in your mind by picking up the nicene creed and and trying to work through that or or uh, the westminster confession of faith i mean are there particular creeds that you would say you know as a christian as a growing maturing christian you you really ought to be familiar with the teaching of of this uh, confessional statement 
Yeah, I think that I would, I always tell my students, Francis Turretin is my homeboy. So, you know, I love Turretin, <laughs> you know, he hung the moon for me. Uh, you know, when always asked the desert island question, which book would you take? It's Turretin's Institutes, not Calvin's Institutes. Calvin's great, but I really like Turretin. And what you find in Turretin, what he says on a particular question like this, at least not directly, but implicitly, is uh, he says that the Apostles' Creed includes kind of the the fundamental articles of the faith that are kind of an index that uh, any any Bible believing, you know, Christ trusting Christian is supposed to embrace. And you find that 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 is perhaps one of the more commented upon creeds uh, within the history of the church. Uh, throughout the ages, whether in the contemporary uh, period, whether in the, the 16th, 17th centuries, or even in the early church. And so I would begin there with the Apostles' Creed, not that it was written by the apostles, but rather it summarizes the, the apostolic faith, the teaching of scripture. Uh, and then from there, begin looking at the various, uh, you know, uh, ecumenical creeds, as they are called, whether it's the uh, the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, uh, which is otherwise known as the Nicene Creed. Uh, and you've, you can often find that in, um, in hymnals and, and in, in various uh, creedal collections, such as Philip Schaff's uh, The Creeds of Christendom. Uh, and then from there, the, the Chalcedonian definition. And then from there, you can hop into the Reformation uh, to look at a number of creeds, whether it's the the three forms of unity for the Dutch continental tradition, which is the Canons of Dort, the uh, Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession or the Westminster Standards, uh, or uh, for the uh, the, the Baptist, uh, Reformed Baptist, the 1689 Second London Confession. Thank you, John. Uh, hey, hey, I, I love <laughs> you guys. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, there's th th that would kind of be the, the the path that I would uh, you know follow along, and uh, if you begin that that study, you could work through those documents with a, with a you know in a relatively brief amount of time within a, a matter of months, you could profitably study them and and learn a whole lot of fantastic teaching. Well, John, thank you for your time today. We're out of time, unfortunately. I will say this in closing: if you ever get those Turretin is, is my homeboy shirts made up. We will wear them. So right. <laughs> uh, have your students get on that. But thank you in all seriousness. Thank you for your time today. And also thank you for writing the book. Very helpful. We commend it to our listeners and, and we appreciate the, the work that it took to, uh, to write it. Thanks. Hey, thanks for having me on and uh, God willing, we'll be able to connect in the future. Jonathan, at the beginning of uh, John Fesco's book on the need for creeds today, he talks uh, about individualism. And this is probably a particularly American phenomenon um, and a recent phenomenon uh, where there's uh, this desire, kind of a kind of me, my Bible and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, the three of us will work out our creed. Uh, and he he really proposes historic creeds as a as a as an antidote to a bad kind of individualism. Um, and I wonder if you had some comments on that, just the value, the commute, the communal and ecclesial value for a church so that we're not just so many individual Christians with our individual creeds, but in fact, there's a, there's something that binds us together confessionally. It's that's probably one of the things that I've heard people say the most who have, re re or the thing that they've reacted against the most is that attitude, um, that kind of individualism. I I've met many people who have moved into more confessionally reformed churches 
And, and the reason why they've moved, or at least one of the major reasons why they've moved is because they've said, my pastor seems to change on these major doctrines, you know, every year, or this last pastor we had said this, this new pastor says that, and there are significant doctrinal differences. And I'm just being told to hold my Bible in my hand, as you said, and, and figure it out. And so I, I think you're right. I think, I think this, this has led to, in many cases, a, a reaction where people have said, we need some more communal uh, participation in our biblical interpretation. And, and a great starting point for that is to look at the, the creeds of the church. So, yeah, it's a problem. The individualism is a huge problem uh, within the evangelical church. And, and, I, and I do think some have recognized it and have been moved to, to study the creeds for themselves. And, and, you know, I would also say this. John's book is a good book if you're in that position. Uh, I think both James and I would recommend it. Uh, and, and there are other good books as well. Carl Truman wrote The Creedal Imperative, which is an excellent also kind of introductory volume that covers some of the same ground. But, but I would certainly not hesitate to give someone Fesco's book. I agree wholeheartedly, and we're, we're glad to recommend it to our listeners. And so for those of you who are listening, we thank you for listening today. If you'd like the opportunity to win a copy of Dr. Fesco's book, The Need for Creeds Today, uh, you can go to placefortruth.org. You can click on the Theology on the Go link, and there will be a, an opportunity there for you to enter your information for a chance to win The Need for Creeds Today. And if you don't win, it's, it's a book worth buying. I don't think you'll regret it. It's not long. It's accessible, but it's very, very um, well-researched, carefully researched, and well thought through. If you are a listener and you know someone else who might be interested in the podcast, please pass it along to them. If you can rate and review us on whatever platform you are downloading this from, that is always a help. It really helps us get the word out. So we'd ask you to do that. And then if you have the means to donate to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you can go to alliancenet.org and click on the donate button or placefortruth.org. There's also a donate button there. And thanks, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the wisdom of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Through publications, events, and courses, they equip lay people, pastors, scholars, and Christian educators by connecting them with the theological, ethical, and cultural riches of Protestants' past. Through their online program, Davenant Hall, and their residential study center, Davenant House, they provide two graduate-level degree programs in classical Protestantism and also welcome anyone taking one-off courses in theology church history, philosophy, and more. Online classes are taught by expert scholars in two-hour weekly Zoom sessions over 10 weeks from just $149 per class. Next term's courses include the Reformation and the Modern World, Unlocking the Book of Romans, Essence and Attributes of God, and many more. Spring term courses begin April 12th. Find out more at davenantinstitute.org and on Facebook and Twitter.